Hello and welcome to Sean Keaveney's Not So Simple, the podcast collaboration I've put together with the smart thinkers of Pan Macmillan. Today we're looking at the future of technology and the very foundations of the internet. Namely, we're going to be examining the mega companies like Facebook, Amazon and Google who have an increasing influence on all our lives. I, for one, welcome the near-dystopian future when via a chip implanted in my brain I'll merely have to think of a product before it is dumped into my back garden via a drone 15 minutes later. So with that in mind, here's my guest today, Jonathan Taplin, the author of Move Fast and Break Things. Jonathan is a genuine legend in the media industry, former tour manager for The Band, a producer of Martin Scorsese films, and a pioneering figure in video on-demand technology. There's no one better equipped to tell us what we can expect from our digital future. With that in mind, here's Jonathan now to read us an exclusive extract from Move Fast and Break Things. I thought I was going to write the story of a culture war. On one side were a few libertarian internet billionaires, the people who brought you Google, Amazon, and Facebook. And on the other side were the musicians, journalists, photographers, authors, and filmmakers who were trying to figure out how to continue to make a living in the digital age. I've spent much of my life producing music and movies for artists such as Bob Dylan and the band, George Harrison and Martin Scorsese, to name a few. And the future of the media in which I worked, not to mention the role of the artist in our society, is important to me. I was lucky enough to start out at a time when an artist could make a decent living by making music or a movie, and as a partner in this work, I succeeded too. But those days are over. Since 1995, the last time I produced a movie, To Die For, the digital distribution of most popular forms of art has reinforced the popularity of a small group of artists and cast almost all the others into a shadow. To be a young musician, filmmaker, or journalist today is to seriously contemplate the prospect of entering a profession that the digital age has eroded beyond recognition. The deeper you delve into the reasons artists are struggling in the digital age, The more you see that internet monopolies are at the heart of the problem and that it is no longer a problem for just artists. The web has become critical to all our lives as well as the world economy, and yet the decisions on how it is designed have never been voted on by anyone. Those decisions were made by engineers and libertarian executives at Google, Facebook, and Amazon, plus a few others, and imposed upon the public with no regulatory scrutiny. We've also seen a plethora of new platforms like Uber, Airbnb, and Twitter, which are operating in an unregulated environment that radically changes the world we inhabit. The result is what former President Obama calls a Wild West, a world without privacy or security that leaves every citizen vulnerable to criminal, corporate, and government intrusion. As Obama wrote in The Economist, a capitalism shaped by the few and unaccountable to the many, is a threat to all. The Internet is changing our democracy, too. In Twitter, Donald Trump found the perfect vehicle for his narcissistic personality, allowing him to strike out at all his perceived tormentors. In Facebook, the primary news source for 44% of Americans was equally responsible for the Trump victory, according to Ed Wasserman, the dean of the University of California, Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism. Quote, 
Trump was able to get his message out on Facebook in a way that was vastly influential without undergoing the usual kinds of quality checks that we associate with reaching the mass public. Facebook was flooded with fake news stories, and BuzzFeed reported that, quote, in the final three months of the U.S. presidential campaign, the top performing fake election news stories on Facebook generated more engagement than the top stories from the major news outlets, such as the New York Times, Washington Post, Huffington Post, NBC News, and others, unquote. As Ian Bremmer, president of the Eurasia Group, told the New York Times, if it wasn't for social media, I don't see Trump winning. But the libertarians who control some of the major internet firms do not really believe in democracy. The men who lead these monopolies believe in an oligarchy in which only the brightest and the richest gets to determine our future. Peter Thiel, the first outside investor in Facebook and co-founder of PayPal, thinks the major problem of American society is its unthinking demos, the democratic public that constrains capitalism. Thiel told Wall Street Journal columnist Holman Jenkins that only 2% of the populace, the scientists, the entrepreneurs, and the venture capitalists understand what's going on, and quote, the other 98% don't know anything. That was an extract from Jonathan Taplin's book, Move Fast and Break Things, and I'm happy to say that we have Jonathan here in the studio now. Hello. Hey, Sean. How are you? Absolutely brilliant. Um, but We're going to get on to the wild west of the internet uh, in a little while, but first, I would like to go back uh, through the mists of time, because that's the great thing about this book. It's kind of part, uh, you know, sort of looking at the future, looking at the present, looking at the possible dystopias that might be coming or that we might be living in. But also there's a lovely bit of music biography. Uh, and that's where we begin, really, with your incredible music and film career. Um, talking about your time road managing people like the band, uh, you know, we, we, there's so much we could talk about. There, there are so many fantastic stories um, working with Bob Dylan, etc. What was it about the, the, the cultural landscape of the late 60s and the early 70s that was right, that is wrong now. Because we, we, we got fed a lot of stories about the fact that people got ripped off a lot in the 60s, but it seems to be a lot worse now. Well, you know, I think the, the trope that the record companies took all the money and the artists got nothing was not true. Uh, I happened to be very close to the band and worked with them for four years from 68 to 72. And they weren't really highly successful musicians, but they made a lot of money. In other words, by selling three or 400,000 albums, they could do very well and make a good living. And so the great thing is that the culture could support groups like the band or Randy Newman or Van Dyke Parks or Ry Cooter, people who weren't gigantic sellers, but who we still listen to today. And so that that was very important, whereas the culture today is really a, like the internet. It's a winner-take-all culture. So last year in the music business, 80% of the revenue went to 1% of the content. And that means that Adele and Jay-Z and Beyonce and Taylor Swift did really well. And most artists weren't able to make a living off their recordings 
um, which to me is a sad situation. Yeah, it really is. It's kind of terrifying when you lay it out like that. And, and you know, it, it happens in the film business, which you've been in, sort of producing Mean Streets and The Last Waltz and other big hits as well. But it, it sort of does feed into the, the main theme of the book, all this, about, you know, the, the, of how a small cabal of billionaires seem to be taking over more or less everything, not just finance, but our culture as well. It, what shocked me was I thought I knew a lot about this, but I clearly don't because I always thought, how much harm can these guys do? Facebook, Google, you know, the the idea of the, the, the strap line being do no harm. We're a long way from, from you know, from Kansas here, aren't we? These guys can do a lot of harm, can't right. they? Well, when you think about it, these companies, Google, Facebook, and Amazon, are three of the five largest corporations in the world. The other two happen to be Microsoft and Apple. Um, so what's unique about them is that they control a resource and the part of Google and Facebook, which is advertising. So almost 90% of all new advertising last year went to either Google or Facebook. So, I mean, now that includes on Google side, YouTube, and it includes on Facebook side, Instagram and WhatsApp. But that's still an extraordinary control of all the advertising money flows in. So that affects everybody. That affects newspapers that rely on a huge amount of their traffic coming from Facebook or Google. And it certainly means that musicians whose music is all on YouTube um, don't get much of anything. If you think about it, if you had a million downloads on iTunes, you could make $900,000 off of that. If you had a million streams on YouTube, you could make $900. So that thousand times difference is where the problem lies. Nobody, even the most popular musician who could get a million streams, can't make a living on $900. Um, that would even pay your rent for a month. So, I mean, that's where the problem lies. So, these giant corporations are sweeping up all the money and hardly any, a few pence are flowing down yeah. to the musicians that provide the content that means why you come to YouTube or, you know, why you come to these other services. Well, one of the phrases that you use in the book, which is kind of chilling, is attention harvesters. And that's essentially what happens, isn't it? We, we especially as slightly older people who remember a world without the internet, and we're part of it now, of course. I have a smartphone and I'm on it too much, probably. We, we sucked down a black hole into what, though? I mean, this is the thing, isn't it? If, if we continue along this, if this the ultimate iteration of, of what you're saying is, is, that, is that there's less and less respect for the actual content, for the culture. Right. And eventually, the, it's going to, if not run out, it's going to be pretty seriously threadbare in a few years' time if it's not properly respected, isn't it? Well, the culture to them is just a commodity. It's a way to lure you into giving up your data to them. These companies, all of them, including Amazon, are in what I call surveillance capitalism. That's the business they're in. Their whole business is data, and they want to capture all the data on you, where you went, what you shopped, what you like, and, and then sell that data back to advertisers. So you are the raw materials of a product they manufacture. That product is, you know, the, the old saying, if you're not paying for it, you're the product, you're not the customer. 
And so um, that's the basic issue. And that eventually could cause a terrible situation. I, I was giving a speech in New York last week, and a bioethicist came up to me and said, I want you to know that we can determine if you have Parkinson's disease from the accelerometer on your smartphone. In other words, the particular tremor for Parkinson's is such that we can determine that, and that data sits on your smartphone. Now, imagine them selling that data to a health insurance company or something. I mean, and that, that worries me a lot. Luckily, we've got somebody in the White House who's responsible, uh, you know, who, who isn't money-focused particularly and commerce-focused, and I think he's going to look after all our best interests. Um, more about that later. Um, I, I, I can't even say this right. Ayn Rand, of course. They, they, they tell us a little bit about... The, you know the workings of of this particular author from uh, earlier in the last century, and this this phrase "Who will stop me?" It comes up a lot. I, I do believe Ivanka Trump, amongst others, recently sort of trotted it out as a, a, almost without anybody thinking too twice about it. But right. what is this idea of the libertarian ethos and Peter Thiel and and, and Trump? Yeah. What's happening here to the world? So, Ayn Rand, probably fortunately for. Europeans is not probably as popular here as she was in the United States. But all the people like Donald Trump and Peter Thiel have have read her work and, and totally believe in it. And the whole thesis of Ayn Rand is that the world is made up of makers and takers. And the makers are 1% of the people and the takers are everybody else. So, the makers are brilliant geniuses who are impeded by democracy to kept from doing the genius things they want to do. And so this is what Paul Ryan, who runs the House of Representatives, totally believes in. He says he gives out the book to all his interns. And the president totally believes in it and his family believes in it. They believe they're the makers and everybody else is getting in their way. So – when you take that to Thiel's theory, then the internet needs to be this place where there's no regulation. Government can't be in the way at all. So in Thiel's wildest fantasy, he has this thing called Seasteads, in which you put your company on a platform in the middle of the ocean that's far enough offshore that no government controls where you live and work. So this is the ultimate um, iteration of an offshore bank account, really. Right. So literally you've created your own sort of little island, right. essentially. And and he's actually building a couple of these in Polynesia somewhere. And this is the idea that if only we could get the government out of the way completely, then everything would be okay. The problem is, on one level, the government has gotten out of their way completely. If you think how they've gotten to the place where Google has 88% market share in search advertising or Facebook has 75% market share between that Instagram and what's up in mobile social or Amazon has 75% market share in the book business, it means that the government has not impeded their growth at all. Google can buy YouTube. Facebook can buy Instagram, WhatsApp. It, you know, they just keep no getting about bigger. No monopolies or anything. Right. So ultimately, you have to think, 
Well, the libertarians say there's a market solution to everything, that the free market will come up with the right answer. But if you ask yourself, is there a market solution to Google owning the whole search business? No, because nobody's going to start a new search engine business to compete with Google. They'd be insane. They'd just lose as much money as Bill Gates lost trying to do that. So um, ultimately, the libertarians managed to convince the Republican Party that this is the way the world should work, that government should get out of the way completely. Now, it may be that in Europe, the antitrust regulators are not quite as afraid of Google politically and might do something, but I don't know. We're, we're going to have to see what plays out in the next year or two. I mean, you say something worrying about how, because the, there might be people thinking, sitting there thinking, well, you know, this is all very well for big business and stuff like that, but, you know, I don't mind. I just use Facebook. It's quite useful for me. I don't really see that it's a particular problem. It, it, what you contend is that it is a problem because eventually th this kind of hyper-technology world in which we're living in, which is just controlled by a little cabal of billionaires, eventually they're going to be coming for most of our jobs. Right. The, the technologists are going to essentially just completely monetize everything and, and just marginalize right. us. We're just going to be like uh, drones in sugar caves. Well, you, you think about where these guys are investing, you know, in terms of... Google, Amazon, even Peter Thiel. They're investing in two things. They're investing in artificial intelligence and they're investing in life extension. So they all want to live to 200 and they're investing millions of dollars so they can live to 200. Now, needless to say, only the very rich will be able to afford whatever this technology they're coming up with that will allow them to live to 200. And I imagine Peter Thiel at 150 in his mansion being so afraid that he might get in a car accident that the, the millions he poured into preserving his life might get he killed by chance, you know, that he's probably not going to go out of his house, you know. So that's the first thing. The second thing is artificial intelligence. So needless to say, just take autonomous car. Mm. Uh, Google's spending millions to do this. So most people think that within 10 years, all truck drivers could be put out of a living. Now, in the U.S. at least, truck drivers is one of the highest number of people in that mm. business of anything. So if you put... Five million people out of work. What are they going to do? They're not going to become, at the age of fifty, coders for mm. Google. So I mean, nobody, as a political sense, is thinking about what are we going to do with all these surplus people. And and it's not just truck drivers. There's a lot of evidence to say that lawyers could be put out of business, and all sorts of other people, sales clerks, and. Needless to say, Amazon is making it almost impossible for someone to open a retail store, mm -hmm. at least in the States right now. Well, certainly not going to go off and become authors or musicians at the current uh, no. state of things, are they? No. That's no. certain. And, and, and this is another concern, I think, which is what happens if, if we all become so reliant on technology and so divorced from self-sufficiency 
that we, we become infantilized by culture, don't we? I mean, we're already kind of there, aren't we? I mean, I can barely change a plug as it is. So uh, what happens there? What's the, again, what, what, what's, it's a bit of a dystopia looking in the next 20 years, isn't right. it? Is there any, is, is there any way of halting that? Is there anything that the individual can do? Well, first, let, let's talk about where it, where it could end up, which is, you know, three weeks ago at the Facebook conference, they mentioned that what they're really working on is be able to read your mind. In other words, you don't even have to type to get something on the Facebook. You just have to think it. So if they can read your mind, you know, we could also implant stuff in your mind. You're walking down the street and they say, oh, you need a coffee. And there's, oh, there's a Starbucks right around the corner. How convenient, you know? And so the whole idea is, of course, to interpret what you want before you want it. Mm. Um, that's what Google thinks it has already. It knows where you go, where you drive, what your habits are. And so you start to type something and it finishes it for you because it knows where you're going. So how do we resist that? Well, the resistance on the first level starts with individual artists, for instance, saying, I don't want my work on YouTube. It's just something that simple. Mm. Today, they can't make that decision. If someone asks, files a takedown notice on YouTube and says, take my song off of YouTube, YouTube will take it down in a week or so, and literally the next day, it'll go up again by someone else. So it's just a silly game of whack-a-mole. So what's happening in the US, and I think it'll happen here too, is artists are saying, we want a law that says, when I ask you to take it down, it has to stay down. It's not like this is hard for mm -hmm. YouTube to do. As we all know, when we use Shazam, you can identify any tune in about two seconds from the audio signature. So they could easily, with their artificial intelligence, block the songs that artists don't want played just the same way they block porn. Mm. You notice there's no porn on YouTube. That's because they have artificial intelligence. When someone tries to upload porn, it sees a bare breast and it puts it in a separate queue, which a human has to then look at and decide, is that porn or is that the mm. National Geographic? You know? And so... Um, they have all these tools. And, you know, I was amused that uh, recently Facebook took out full-page ads in most of the British newspapers saying, here's how you understand fake news. Here's all the 10 steps you should go through to understand where something's fake news or not. It's all nonsense. It's PR. Mm. They could obviously do this. They could filter out the fake news easily yeah. themselves but they want to make you have the responsibility yeah. for doing that it's kind of terrifying isn't it and and this is the thing isn't it we it's a sort of atomization of of culture thing we probably all need to get in the back gardens a little bit more um but is is there something that we can do uh, because obviously that's one thing that we can do um, journalism as well is, is is a colossal problem here, isn't it? Because that's our fourth estate. That's the way we, as people, get our information. That's the, the, the weapon we've got against uh, elites that could be doing things against us. This this is kind of a sleeper problem that now we're losing we're losing journalism as a as a discipline altogether, and it's just coming from all these kinds of 
unedited sort of unverified places is that one of the major problems that we now face yeah i mean i think that essentially if you just look at the united states 50 percent of the people who were working in journalism 10 years ago are no longer working in journalism that we have 50 percent less journalists than we did 10 years ago so what that means is that the little newspaper in in new orleans now publishes one day a week. It doesn't have the money to pay a police reporter to to watch or someone to watch City Hall and look for corruption. And it may be that the London Times or or some other big news organization are still going to maintain themselves, but the smaller regional papers are going to go away. So that's one big problem. The other problem is that artists... If, if music has to be just a hobby, something you do at night to supplement your day job and keep you from feeling depressed mm. about your life, that's not the way we get to make great artists. Music has to be a passion that someone does all the time and works at really hard, and it, it can't just be a hobby. And so if we get to the place where people can't actually make a living as an artist, but have to just do it as a side job, I think we will really lose something. Yeah. And and, and finally then, is there a note of optimism that you could strike with regards to the way things are at the moment? Do you, Is there anything that, that is happening at the moment or that you could foresee happening that that could rehabilitate the, the, the moral framework of the internet and make it all... Make it all okay. Yeah. So... I quote in the book a, a sentence from Martin Luther King, which in a bizarre way, literally a week before he was killed, he gave a speech in Washington. Um, and he said, you know, oftentimes we go through a period and we end up sleeping through a revolution, but we really have to wake up and see what's going on here. So I think we've been kind of sleeping through this internet revolution. And so what I really feel encouraged by, not just in London, but in New York and Chicago and Los Angeles and all the places where I've been going to speak, is that people are really waking up about this stuff. And they're realizing that these services aren't just um, don't be evil, unmitigated good. There's a downside to them too. I'm not saying I don't use Facebook because mm. I do use Facebook. Um, but... What I'm saying is we have to understand that unless they start giving money back to the culture, in other words, paying artists better for their music on YouTube or paying newspapers better for the content that is sitting on Facebook, then we're not going to have a culture. And then we're going to have maybe a winner-takes-all, every movie is a Marvel movie or every song is is a Jay-Z or a mm. Sean, you know, somebody, you know, what Ed Sheeran, yeah. whatever. But that's not really the kind of diverse world. And, and by the way, artists have often played a role in society as kind of the sand in the wheels kind of thing. I mean, I think about the role that Bob Dylan played in the 1960s in the civil rights movement. 
Uh, I think even the role that John Lennon played in going against the war in Vietnam, you know, pretty brave stuff. Yeah. And, you know, they they certainly suffer for that sometimes. John Lennon was investigated by the FBI and, you know, maybe was going to get thrown out of the United States. But they had the courage to do that. If only the stuff that's on is the pop stuff, we won't have that. And that that will be missing something important. Absolutely. Um, Jonathan Taplin, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Jonathan and I have got to wind up there because we're off to watch uh, a Spider-Man movie and then go and catch Ed Sheeran in concert, um, which we're going to sort out with a few of our friends on Facebook. But Move Fast and Break Things is a brilliant, brilliant book. I heartily recommend it. It's now available as hardback, ebook, and audiobook from all good and disreputable retailers. Jonathan, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. That was Jonathan Taplin, whose book Move Fast and Break Things is now available as a hardback, ebook, and audiobook from all good and disreputable retailers. That's it. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm not really one for moving fast, but I certainly feel like breaking things after that. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm off to ask Jeeves how to open the MySpace account.